I'd like to introduce our lead pastor, Pastor Joe Soros. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, everybody. So again, happy Mother's Day, moms. Um, many of you probably noticed that my wife is not here this morning. A couple weeks ago, our youngest son, David, and his wife, Marina, uh, said to, to my wife, you know, we'd love to take you to the Yankees game for Mother's Day. And she said to him, what do you think? You know, I said, go, go enjoy yourself. So she's not here this morning because she's on her way to the Yankees, Yankees Stadium. Now, you guys don't realize what this means to my wife, okay? Um, you know how most households, it's the guy that sits there and watches sports? Uh, our house is the exact opposite. I'm sorry to say that baseball bores me to tears. Uh, I would rather watch a soccer game or a basketball game. At least there's some action there. She loves it, so... I said, go, be blessed, go enjoy your, enjoy your Mother's Day. Um, and I think it started out because they're handing out some kind of pocketbooks there or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's some kind of special day where they hand out free things. And, and uh, so they said, hey, Mom, you know, would you like to come? We'll spend Mother's Day. At, you know, I said, go, go ahead. You're not my mom. Go. <laughs> so that's where she is this morning. So, Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, listen, uh, those of you that are 60 and better... Um, make sure you sign up because it's filling up. As of the other day, we had 125 people signed up. Um, and you got to figure with the three campuses, uh, we're going to have to cut it off at some point. So please, if you did not sign up yet, please sign up. It's going to be a really great day. This is something I've had on my heart for, for a long, long, long time. And um, you may have heard me talk about it maybe last weekend, but it's a special day for us because what we're going to do, the real feature of the day is going to be this worship time where we're going to do songs that meant a lot to us in our past experience. Some of the songs from maybe 20, 30 years ago that we don't really do as, as a practice here during services. And some of you are going to remember some of these songs. Uh, we believe it's important to honor that heritage because you know for yourself that there are songs that remind you of certain seasons that you had with the Lord. Maybe there's a time when you got saved that there was a specific song that really touched your heart. Uh, maybe God healed you and there was a song, there was something that God did in your life. And when that song, when you hear it, it brings you back to that place. We want to have that experience again. Amen? Amen? So please, if you haven't signed up yet, please go ahead and sign up. And excuse me, I got to take a drink because my mouth is like, I don't know what that is, but. So you'll forgive me if I have to drink, take a drink of water every once in a while. All right, so please make sure you go out there and sign up today, again, because uh, this might be the last weekend that we take registrations for that. You are allowed to bring a guest or two, whoever you want. You can bring, as long as they fall into that category. Uh, somebody said, well, wh what's going on for, like, the 55-year-olds? I said, well, <laughs> we're, not, we're not carding anybody at the door, so <laughs> just don't tell them out there that I said that, Okay. Hallelujah. As you know, 60's the new 50. I can say that now. Hallelujah. All right, so let's get into this message, okay? We've got, I've got about, well, I'm not going to tell you. Um, so I, I feel like with this series, and I hope you forgive me if you've been here every weekend, um, I feel like with this series, I need to do as much review as possible because you don't get 
the direction of the, of the message if you're not, if you weren't here for the, for the very beginning, for the very fundamental foundation of this message. And basically what it comes down to is human beings are messed up. I don't know if you realize that. Have, has anybody realized that? <laughs> A couple of people have. Human beings are messed up. But you see, if we don't correct this mindset, some of us think that it was God that created us messed up. And you'll hear people say this, well, that's the way God made me. I got a bad temper, that's the way God made me. No, don't blame that on God. He didn't create you that way. That's not the original creation. The original creation is completely different than what we see today. Amen? So we need to talk about the fact that our identity was hijacked by the enemy of our souls. Amen? And if you don't understand that, you will go through life blaming God for the issues that you have that identify you. Uh, an addiction problem. Uh, a victim mentality, which we'll talk a little bit about that for those of you that haven't been here. You can't go around the rest of your life blaming other people for your situation. Okay? Yes. Are there some of us that have been uh, just 100% victimized? Yeah. But there comes a point in your life that you realize, wait a second, if I continue thinking this way, then I'm going to continue being a victim of something that I didn't deserve. When you come to that place to recognize, okay, I'm acting this way, thinking this way, talking this way, because of what was done to me as a response to that. This is what I'm doing to try to numb the pain. But if you don't get to the point to go, wait a second. So let's say a person totally victimized you. Are you going to continue letting them victimize you? No. No, you come to a point to go, okay, I, I realize this was done to me, but now from this point forward, I'm taking responsibility. I'm going to have some change and some transformation in my life. Amen. Come on. Amen. So, without going into a whole lot of detail, Genesis chapter 3 plays a really important role in this series. Genesis chapter 3, you may know the story. If you're, if you're a Bible, you know, if you read your Bible, I hope you do. Genesis chapter 3, everything is wonderful up until this point in the Garden of Eden. At this point, the devil comes in to the human experience, speaks to Eve, and convinces her that God is not as good as she thinks he is, that God has actually been withholding some things from her, and that because of God withholding information from her, that she's incomplete, she's lacking, she doesn't measure up. And listen to me, look at me, and I don't care how tough of a person you think you are, every one of us battle with those same thoughts from the time that we're children. Amen. That we don't measure up, we're lacking, uh, we're, we're, dis we're a disappointment, and, and we get frustrated because we don't know how to overcome those feelings. Okay? Um, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. It's just, it's in our psyche. So in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, there are some attributes, that come, some characteristics that become part of man's identity that were never supposed to be part of man's identity, okay? That is the great betrayal that took place in Genesis chapter 3. And the devil was after the same thing he's after today in your life, their identity. To get them, his whole purpose was to get Adam and Eve to switch their identity from being totally, totally enraptured in the presence of God, from becoming from that to becoming self-conscious and less God-conscious. So we find out the very first time that man experienced fear was right after he fell into sin. He sinned, God comes on the scene, God calls for him, 
And he says, I hid myself because I was afraid. So this is the very first time that fear comes into the human experience. And it's been plaguing us ever since. From the time that we're children. If you grew up in a household like I did, you were taught and trained to be fearful. You were taught, don't go too far from the house. You know, if you grew up in the city atmosphere like I did, you can't ride your bicycle on the street. You're going to get hit by a car and get killed. You know, how many of you heard that one when you were growing up? Just fear, fear, fear. Don't talk to a stranger. Don't do this. Don't go out at night. Don't. It's just, you, you understand what I'm saying? Maybe it's just from my experience. So God bless you guys that you were not involved in that. The next thing that we see is self-centeredness, like I said before. They were naked, and they had no clue. They didn't have, they were, there was no consciousness that they were naked. But once their, the sin came into the world, they took their eyes off of God and put their eyes on themselves. And you and I have been battling this stuff ever since. Self-centeredness. It's the first man-made religion. comes out of Genesis chapter 3. A man-made religion is man's attempt to try to justify himself in the sight of God without God. And so the Bible says that they took fig leaves and sewed together fig leaves to try to cover themselves because they recognized their shame. Before, they had no concept of shame. They're naked before God. They're free. They're enjoying his company. There, there's no strife in the garden. There's no division there. But all of a sudden, sin comes on, on the scene, and they have a need to justify themselves before God without going to God to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. Next thing we see is the first instance of uh, taking blame and shifting it to someone else. God comes on the scene and he says to Adam, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to? He said, I did, but the woman you gave me, she made me do it. And we laugh about that and it's funny and you'll see Christian comedians talk about it all the time. But let's, let's be honest with each other. He just threw his cards on the table. He's blaming God for his sin. You brought her here. I was doing good until she showed up. It's your fault. And so then God speaks to Eve, and she blames the devil. She doesn't take responsibility. She doesn't say, I was wrong. I should have known better. She blames it. So what do we have here? The very first instance of shifting blame. And what did that lead to? It led to the most dangerous thing that a person can entertain as a human being on this planet, which is the victim mentality. It's not my fault, God. It's not my fault. Yeah, I sinned, but it's not my fault. It's your fault. You brought her here. Eve's the same thing. It's not my fault. It was the devil. But they forgot one thing. God had given them free choice. They didn't have to listen to the voice of the enemy. And that comes to us now to this day. When individuals, I, I can spend 15 minutes with a person and I'll be able to know probably within 90% accuracy whether they're going to overcome their addictions or whether they're going to overcome their wounds and hurts is because when a person is constantly blaming somebody else for the issues that they're going through. Now, I'm not talking about a teenager. I'm talking about somebody that's an adult. It's my father's fault. My father didn't spend enough time with me. It's my mother's fault. She didn't give me the affection that I deserve. It's my sibling's fault. It's my boss's fault. My boss doesn't appreciate me. It's my teacher's fault. My teacher doesn't think I'm smart and thinks I'm stupid. It's this person, that person, the other person. It's the pastor's fault. It's the deacon's fault. It's, the, it's everybody else's fault. When you have that kind of mentality, and I hope you're doing an inventory right now as I'm speaking to you, if you find yourself constantly doing that, you're a victim. And unless you acknowledge that, 
And unless you repent of that, and unless you say, yeah, God, you know what? I was influenced by some bad things. I did grow up in a dysfunctional household. I did, you know, my parents weren't there for me. That, that, until you realize, okay, that's fine, but I'm not going to let the dysfunction, I'm not going to let the abuse keep identifying me. I'm not gonna, I am not going to do that anymore. I am now, from this point forward, turning my life over to God. I'm going to let him now influence me. I'm going to let him now put me on the right path. I will be healed of these things. I will be set free of these things. When a person continuously entertains a victim mentality, they will not get free. It just not, and that is the main reason why the enemy did what he did in Genesis chapter 3, to get every human being on this planet to see themselves as a victim, as a victim. Always needed to be cared for, always needed to compensate for. Well, you know, you should compensate for my activity because, or you should put up with my garbage because. It's your fault. You, you made me angry. If you didn't make me angry, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have punched the wall. If you didn't make me angry, I wouldn't have smashed the dishes. If you didn't, always somebody else's fault. And, and then you have the enablers. Oh, man, somebody needs to hear this this morning. <laughs> well, you know, I kind of understand. They're, they're kind of, I, I really can understand their, their abusive uh, uh, personality and their abusive tactics because you, I didn't say, you know, it's partially my fault. I shouldn't have said this. I shouldn't have did that. I shouldn't have went here. I shouldn't have bought this. I shouldn't. You fill in the blanks. And, and honey, if you're doing that, you better open your eyes. Because you're not helping that person. Whether you're a guy, whether you're a, whatever, it doesn't matter. If you are constantly making excuses for somebody's behavior, something is wrong. Now, granted, it stems all the way back to here. But that does not mean we need to be controlled by this. That's why you and I have the opportunity to be born again so that we disconnect from the patterns of the past and we connect to our future in Christ where we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Are you listening to me? Somebody needs to hear this this morning, okay? Break the mold. Change the pattern. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. You're going to have to connect with God Almighty. His Holy Spirit in you will take you the rest of the way and bringing you to a place of wholeness, bringing you to a place of transformation. But if you continue, continue, keep going. And some people, I know, I've seen it, been on this planet for a number of years now, been born again for 38 years now. I've seen this over and over again. Sometimes, especially with a wife, they're like, well, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't know. In other words, I know what this person's patterns are. I kind of learned how to live with it. Uh, so, so you're tolerating stuff and tolerating stuff. And, toler- and listen, I didn't come here this morning to be a troublemaker. <laughs> I'm just talking the truth from the Word of God. Okay? You cannot continue to enable somebody. And some people say, well, where am I going to go? How am I going to earn a living? How am I going to take care of my kids? I don't have any place to go. I don't have place. No, you've got to trust God. You trust God. You step out in faith and you trust God. Amen? Amen? Now listen, I'm sorry, I'm not one of those pastors that would tell a wife that's in an abusive situation, especially if it's physical abuse. Well, you know, you made your marriage marriage vows. Oh, no, no, oh, no, no. That person made their marriage vows, too. And there's no excuse. We know of too many stories throughout the decades of pastors who told the wife, well, you need to stay there, you need to honor your, your, your marriage vows, and then they did their funeral in the future. Okay? Man, somebody needs to hear this this morning. Say this with me. I'm so glad I came to church because so I, I needed this. So, amen. Let's go. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God says, let us make 
man in our image, in our likeness, let them have dominion. I can't get this across enough because the entire, all the gospels, all the entire New Testament is based on that. Jesus, before he leaves the earth, gives authority to the church to speak and to act and to take authority in his name. Throughout most of the Old Testament, you don't see much of this because man's still trying to get out from under the burden of guilt and condemnation. Because in the Old Testament, you had to kill an animal. A poor little animal had to die because you sinned. Okay, But the fact is, no matter how many animals you killed, no matter how many throats were slit, no matter how much blood was shed, the nature of the sinner did not change. Right? right? The blood covered their sins for one year. And every year on that anniversary, they had to go back, slit another animal, shed that blood so that their sins were covered, not removed, not cleansed, covered. And that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about the sacrificial system. Amen? Amen. But nobody came away born again. If people in the Old Testament got born again, it wasn't because of the sacrifice. It was because they put faith in the promises of God that someday this Messiah is going to show up on the earth. So you have people in the Old Testament being qualified for heaven, but their nature could not change. Are you listening? They just had the promise that someday this Messiah is going to come. Someday the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world would show up on the scene. And he did. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He's the Lamb. There's no coincidence that he's born and the shepherds are the first ones that find out. He's the Lamb. He's the Lamb of God. He's going to be slain. His blood's going to be shed for the purpose of transformation, not just having our sins covered, but our sins cleansed and removed. So in the Old Testament, this is good stuff because I hadn't considered this before. In the Old Testament, very rarely could you have a human being take authority over nature, take authority over the devil, because they did not stand in that position of delegated authority from the Lord Jesus Christ. He hadn't shown up yet. Amen. So every once in a while, you'd have a prophet show up, someone that the Holy Spirit would come upon, and for, for that time, they could stop the devil's activity. They could take authority over nature. They could do supernatural things, but not on a daily basis. We come on the scene as the church, and Jesus gives all authority to the church. We live this way all the time. Are you getting this? This is the way we're supposed to live. Something's not right on the earth. We're supposed to stand in the gap and go, oh, no, we take authority over you in the name of Jesus. Storms coming, tornadoes coming, hurricanes coming. We're supposed to stand up like Jesus did in the boat and say, peace, be still. We can do it. Some of you are sitting and going, oh, we don't have that kind of power. You never will. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. But God, Jesus, called us to be supernatural beings. That's your identity. Your identity and my identity is tied up in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. He created us to have dominion. We're the rulers, we're the leaders, we're the administrators, we're the ones that's supposed to be administrating the resources of the kingdom of God. That's why we could feed thousands of people in the food pantry next door for a fraction of what it would cost the government. Why? Because the government is not called to feed the poor, the church is called to feed the poor. We could take care of the homeless way better and at a fraction of the cost than the government can. It's not their fault. I mean, they take advantage of the situation, but we blame the government. Don't blame the government. It's not their job. 
It's our job. So when we step up to do stuff like this, all the resources of heaven become available to us. Are you listening to me? Why? Because we're walking in our identity. You need to get this deep down inside. See, you're sitting here right now, and you're going, but you're going to walk out of here, and, and adversity is going to come to your life, and you're going to sit there and go, why is this happening to me? Where's God? Why is he? No. God's always, he's where he's always been, on the throne, waiting for you to speak. Because he gave you that authority. Hey, listen, let me tell you this. If I hire an attorney, because I've got a case to fight in court, and I go to court, and he sits there not saying a thing, I'm going to be mad. I'm going to go, hey, give me my retainer back. You didn't do a thing here. That's right. I'm, I, I hired him to speak on my behalf. Guess what? God hired you to speak on his behalf. He needs the church to speak up, and we'll go into this more. And I might as well just go there soon. Uh, we'll go into this more, because that was what I wanted us to see today in part three of this thing. Listen to me. You can't go through life as a Christian and be wimpy. It's counter to your identity. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Jesus Christ died a horrible death on the cross, went into hell, rose again from the dead so that you could take his place on the earth. Now, you're not God. You're never going to be God. But we're God's representatives on the earth. The church are the called out ones from the world to represent God on the earth. I said this a couple of weeks ago, I think on a Wednesday night service. Do you know why the early Christians were being martyred and and persecuted? Because they would not drop a pinch of incense in front of a statue of the emperor. Say, well, what the heck has that got to do with anything? I'll tell you Roman thought. Okay, to the Roman mindset in the imperial Rome, that statue was the emperor. It was the emperor's representative to your city. When you refused to burn incense to that statue, it was the same as you refusing to burn incense to the emperor himself and declare that Caesar is Lord. And so when the the Christians would come and they would say, well, you'd renounce your faith, they would say, no, Jesus is Lord, okay, not Caesar, Cut their heads off. Throw them in the, in, the, in the Colosseum. Let the lions feed them. Let the lions, let the lions eat them. All this other kind of horrible stuff. Why? We don't understand that. But to them, the statue represented dominus, dominion, the Lord. That same concept is in the kingdom of God. You and I are like that statue on the earth. God considers you his representative. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it talks about us being ambassadors. That wording meant a lot more to the early church than it means to us. They understood what it meant. They understood you're a representative of the king, just like that statue in the middle of the village is a representation of the emperor. I have to respect that statue as if it's the person. Well, God's kingdom operates the same way. He set us up gave us authority and expects, God expects the kingdom of darkness, God expects every unnatural thing on this earth that's not part of his kingdom to bow to his representative. But we're not living up to that. We sit back. We get mad at people. We get mad at Christians when they become vocal because there's things going on in our nation that are not right. Okay? I'm told, I'm told, just, you told me this this morning, that just now, this morning, there are groups of individuals that are protesting outside of churches. Inside, too? They won't come here. <laughs> inside of churches. And, the, and you know what most of the Christians are going to do? 
I go, get out of this place. This is private property. Amen. You want to protest? Go protest in the middle of the street. You don't step foot on this property. But most, most what are you going to do? They'll sit there. They'll get eggs thrown at them, all kinds of stuff. What are you going to do? Rise up. Amen. We're called to have dominion. When there's something screwy going on on this planet, whether it's this nation or someplace else, it's the church's responsibility to stand up and go, oh, wait a second. What's going on over there is contrary to the word of God. No, no, no. You stop that right now in the name of Jesus. Oh, don't you love people? Oh, I love people. I love people. But I'm not going to let people's sin affect affect my life, my family, this church, this nation. No, you don't do that. Why? Do you understand we're going to give an accountability for all this when we get to heaven? Yes. What do you think Jesus is going to ask you? How many cookies you baked for the old lady down the street? <laughs> what did you do when I moved on your heart and told you that is wrong? I want you to pray against that. I want you to speak against that. I want you to vote against that. Amen. Well, Pastor, no, we shouldn't be talking about the kind of stuff in church. Yeah. Honey, if churches didn't talk about this stuff, Starbucks would be serving tea and we'd be speaking British. I, I thank you for that, but I, I don't need that. I appreciate that, but I don't need that. Because I don't know what it is, but years and years ago, my early Christian walk, I got a hold of this. And of course, this could be taken wrong, and some people have run with it for their own personal gain and for their own personal power. But we still don't get it that we are the ruling administrative branch of the kingdom of God on the earth. How many remember a gentleman named Miles Monroe? Has anybody? Go read his stuff. Go listen. Unfortunately, he went home to be with the Lord early. That guy had an understanding of kingdom authority that many Christian ministers do not have. He grew up. Um, what, was, what are the islands down the Caribbean that used to belong to Britain? Is it the Bahamas? The Bahamas? He grew up there. I remember him, I remember him talking one time saying, you American people don't know what it's like to grow up under a monarchy. He said, we grew up the queen was the head of state. And a monarchy operates extreme. Man, this is so completely different than last night's message. You were here last night. Am I right? Completely different. Okay. In a monarchy, what the king says or the queen says matters. He said, you people are used to living in a, in a democratic republic here, where it's a different story. He said, the closest thing on earth to the kingdom of God is a monarchy, because God is king over the universe. Amen? Amen. When God speaks, you better move. Why? He's the king. Okay? Now, thank God he's not an abusive dictator. He's what they would call a benevolent ruler, but he's he's king nonetheless. And see, here's the problem, especially in our... This is why people overseas, like in the Middle East, or when they get saved, they understand this concept. In Africa, African Christians are way more radical than we are, because they understand this concept. Europe... Not so much. But they understand the concept that you live in a monarchy. God is king. And when he sets people up and has ambassadors, you had better treat the ambassador of that kingdom like it's the king himself, or you're going to be in big trouble. See, we don't understand that here. And, and the other thing, too, I had, I had a bunch of, not a bunch of people, a few people leave the church, oh, a long time ago, probably 20 years ago, because I got up and I said, um, 
Some of you guys got this thing mixed up when it comes to Christianity and church. You actually think this is a democracy. It's not. The church is not a democracy. Oh, it gets real quiet when you talk about this one. The church is a theocracy. Do you understand what that means? It's rulership under God. Okay, now man's taking it in some facets. You have some denominations where it's a democratic thing. Well, they vote for every vote for the ushers. They vote for the teachers. They vote for the pastor. The poor pastor's on a leash. He can't preach what he wants because after all, they'll fire him. So that is the most ungodly thing. We call those deacon-possessed churches (laughs) where the pastor is not free to do what they need to do. That, That is a group of individuals that don't understand their identity in Christ and do not understand who the church is. Okay? Now, oh, man. How many history buffs do we have here? (laughs) This is why the Catholic Church morphed into what it became in the Middle Ages. Because when the Roman Empire collapsed and all the other empires collapsed, they left a void. They left a vacuum. It's not coincidental that the main big churches in the Catholic um, world were also the main churches, the main cities in the Roman Empire. It's like everything collapsed. Who's going to step in? Who was there? Who's going to take care of the, who's going to take care of the poor? Who's going to defend people? Who's going to open up hospitals? Who's going to open orphanages? The church. So the church stepped in, but unfortunately, they didn't safeguard everything. So it became more of a secular power than it be, remained a spiritual power. And this is where I want to go. If you don't understand that you're... Is anybody learning anything this morning? Okay, just give me a grunt. Give me something every once in a while. Because sometimes I just feel like I'm up here rambling. So so you're learning some stuff? Okay, what was I talking about? Oh, so here, watch this now. So here we are now after almost 1,700 years of having more of a secular view within the churches than the original first 300 years when the persecution was really bad, okay? Up until that point, there was purity in the church. After Constantine declares that Christianity is the church of the empire, there was no price to pay anymore for your identity. See, previous to that, God bless you, previous to that, person announced themselves as a Christian, baptized publicly, you're putting your life on the line. You're at best gonna forfeit your property, property, you could have your children taken away from you. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, you, could have, you could lose your job. You could lose your livelihood. Everything would be taken away from you. And ultimately, if it really was bad, you'd get executed. After Constantine declares Christianity the accepted religion of the empire, there's no price to pay. So everybody became a Christian. Why? Because now if you become a Christian, you could be voted into the Senate in Rome. You could have a big shot job in the Roman administration. You could do all these things. So everybody became Christians. And what happened? They brought all their pagan stuff in with them. There was no longer a price to pay. Are you listening to me? Okay. So what happens? The church becomes polluted. So for the next 1,200 years, it's darkness. Then a little monk comes along in Germany. And there's something that bothers him. And he can't just put up with this junk anymore. And he starts what we know as the Reformation. Now, listen to me. Martin Luther never started on the path to try to split the church. His real intention was to reform the church. You gotta remember, he's a Roman Catholic monk. But he realizes, I can't change this thing on my own. And they split off. 
and the Reformation comes into power. And the Reformation brings back the purity of the Word of God, not overnight, little by little by little by little by little, okay? And that's our roots today. So it comes down to this now, and I'm going to really wrap this thing up and now give you part three. All of this was introduction. Amen. And I believe in that because what's the use of me presenting a new concept and a new idea if you're not rock solid in the foundation? You're going to go, oh, wow, that's nice. You're going to walk out and forget about it. Now, here's the deal. Just like, oh, this is good. Somebody should write this down. Just like Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they made, they set the pattern for humanity to become more self-conscious than God-conscious. The same thing happens in the early church around 330, 340 in those years when Constantine, again, made it all right for everybody to become a Christian. You don't have to put your life in danger anymore. What happened? The church became more natural-conscious and less spiritual conscious. Because guess what? When you're not facing persecution anymore, and you don't have to sit up all night waiting that somebody's going to come to your door and drag you away, you go, ah. And unfortunately, you start relying less on reading the word. You, start, you stop praying as much as you did. You stop relying on God's wisdom and God's spirit for everything in your life, and you now become very much engrossed in natural Adam and Eve had no idea of the natural until sin came into their world. Amen. You listening to me? Yes. Now watch this now. If you as a Christian do not embrace the fact that your identity is a spiritual matter, it is not a natural matter. Okay, now watch this now. I'm going to throw a lot of stuff at you. Now, God created us in his image and his likeness and gave them, male and female, Dominion, this position of authority, okay? Now, when you and I, as born-again, spirit-filled believers, are very much aware of our spiritual identity, you and I being very much of our spiritual identity qualifies, this, qualifies us, get this, qualifies us to have dominion over the natural. If you're so caught up in the natural, you cannot have dominion over the natural. That's why when they're all in the boat crossing the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up out of nowhere, the very trained fishermen start freaking out. Why? They understand this is not supposed to happen. They're trained fishermen. We had a discussion about this a while ago. In the original language, it seems to indicate that this storm that hit them, you remember what storm I'm talking about, right? The storm that came was demonic in nature. It wasn't something natural. But they're trying to reason it out in their minds as something natural. Jesus, they wake him up, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And he's like, what is your deal? What's your problem? Who told you you're perishing? I told you, get in the boat, we're going over to the other side. Jesus stands up because he's much more aware of who he is, that the Holy Spirit has a hold of him, okay? He stands up, and he doesn't deal with the situation in the natural. He deals with the situation how? Spiritually. And he stands up, and in the authority of who he is, he says to the wind, stop it, says to the waves, peace, and what happens? It becomes flat as glass, and now they're really freaked out. Because they say, who is this guy? Who is, who do we, who's in the boat with us? 
And I'll guarantee you from that day forward, they looked at him differently. But he was trying to get them to get less aware of the natural and more, oh, this is so good, and more aware of the spiritual. Oh, yeah. This is why when, the, when whoever that was came to him and said, you got 15,000 people here, and there's the one kid with a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. He goes, let them sit down in groups of 50s. They're like, what are you talking about? If we had a whole year's worth of wages, we couldn't buy enough food. What are they doing? They're trying to handle it how? In the natural. Why? Because they did not recognize who they got with them. Your identity is tied up in the spirit. If you'll allow the spirit through the word of God to transform your identity, you will stop looking at the things in the natural and you will begin to look at every adversity that comes to you as a spiritual thing. And you'll take authority over it as a spiritual being. You'll not try to figure it out in the natural. I remember many, many, many years ago in the church that I was in before I went out to go to Bible school to become you know, trained for the ministry. There was a young lady that was there. You guys know the story. John, you know the story. I don't know if anybody else was back there. Then. She was demon-possessed. Amen. Trust me, I was there. She was demon-possessed. I was part of a group of individuals that were set to pray for this, this young lady. She had been traumatized. She had been experienced some horrible stuff. I don't even want to go into what, she, what we knew she was exposed to as a child just for the fact of just decorum, okay? I was in the room. We're praying over her and just binding this spirit, binding that devil, casting this out, casting out that. And I swear to you, I saw my own eyes. Without nobody touching, a ring flew off of her finger and went to the opposite side of the room. We found out later that a woman who was a witch had given her this ring and told her to wear that. Nobody touched the ring. She didn't take it off. It flew off her hand. So we're dealing with a spiritual thing, right? One, young, one, one guy that we knew um, didn't use too much wisdom. He's, you know, back then, you, you wore ties to church. He's kneeling in front of this, this person as she's manifesting all these demons. And I'm going, oh, my God, no, get away from there. Don't kneel there. And in a split second, she grabs his tie and yanks him in, and she's screaming in his face, and his poor face turned white. I'm like, oh, my God, you are trying to deal with the spiritual thing and the natural. People would come by and tell us, give her some apple juice. Her sugar must be low. <laughs> What is that? Trying to deal with a spiritual problem. Man, are you recording this? <sighs> Trying to deal with a spiritual problem with natural means. Amen. Now, when you do that, the devil perks up and goes, they don't have a clue. Amen. I can get away with anything in this atmosphere. Yeah. They're clueless. They're trying to deal with spiritual matters in a natural way. You can't do that. That's why God gave us dominion because we are spiritual beings living on a natural planet that is supposed to be subject to the kingdom of God. Are you getting this? No, no, don't do that. I don't have time for that. So watch this now. Your identity and my identity is a spiritual matter. Would you turn to somebody? Because I don't know if you're getting this. Turn to somebody say that. Your identity and my identity is a spiritual matter. You getting this? Yes. Oh, man. This is, I wish this was the grand finale. So Adam and Eve brings this obsession with, natural, with the natural realm into our human experience. But that's not our God-given identity. That's why John, the apostle, 
after he spends time on the Isle of Patmos, he comes back and not only did he write the book of Revelation, he also wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Amen. He's coming off of a period of revelation. Okay? Listen to what he wrote in 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers. Oh, I love the way it says it there. Yeah. Nor the things it what? Offers. Because let's face it, the world does offer things. Yeah. Okay. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. They are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. What's he saying? Stop being obsessed with the natural world around you. Stop, I, love, I don't say this, and, and, and if you've done this, please forgive me. I'm not talking about you. But I love when people go someplace they travel. So, oh, Pastor, say how beautiful it is. Go to Grand Canyon. Beautiful, beautiful. Grand Canyon is a result of judgment. The Grand Canyon occurred when the flood came upon the earth. It's a hole in the ground. Does it have beauty? But don't get so caught up with it. Why? Because what the world looked like before the flood came is going to blow our minds. Because we're going towards restoration. Yet the planet is degenerating. And we go, beautiful, beautiful. Everything's beautiful. We're caught up. I want to move to this place because it's so beautiful. Did God tell you to go there? (laughs) Almost without fail, every time somebody comes to me and says, well, you know, we're going to move to such and such a place. Well, did you find a church there? They go, I could see it on their face. Like, didn't even think about that. See what I'm saying? So, to, so did God tell you to move there? God, I almost made that mistake back in the 90s. Almost moved to Florida. Because, you know, like everybody else, you feel if you move to Florida, you leave all your problems behind. That would be true if you stayed here. But you take you with you when you go. So I almost made that mistake in the natural. I don't know what result it would have had in my life. But you understand now, now, you hear what I'm talking about. Your identity is a spiritual matter. And if you don't approach it in a spiritual way, you will never take hold of the identity that God had for us. Real quick review. God is a creator, yes? Yes. Very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God what? Created. Okay, so if we're creating images like this, then there should be some creativity about us. Oh, not me, Pastor. No, 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 it's there. You just got to go dig for it. He told us to have dominion. That's why some of us are very administrative thinking. Some of us are entrepreneurs. Some of us just naturally produce everything we put our hands to prospers. Why? Because that's, you're walking in your identity. You're walking in your identity. Bible tells us that God is love, and that's why many times there are many of us that... We get moved with compassion when we see a situation, a person suffering, uh, a mom, a single mom not being able to afford their groceries. We get moved with compassion. Why? That's your identity. You're acting like your daddy. You're acting like your father. 
Now, what the devil wants to do is get your heart bitter, get you in unforgiveness, get you hard-hearted. Well, you don't know, Pastor, I helped that person, helped this person, helped that person out. They don't even care anymore. They don't bother with me. Nobody worries about me. Nobody takes care of me. Blah, blah, blah. Me, 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 me. What happened? The devil got you to abandon your original identity because you're supposed to be the giver. Nobody liked that one. You're supposed to be the giver. You're not supposed to be concentrating on receiving. If you're the giver, naturally you're going to receive. But if you, every time you have a little bit of disappointment now, I'm not going to, that's it. I'm not helping anybody anymore. I don't care if they're, when you do that, the devil goes, got him. Got him. You understand? Somebody else needed to hear that. So our identity in Christ is a spiritual matter. Ephesians chapter 1. Come on, I got 12 minutes and we got to be out of here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, down to verse 21. Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. I want you to put your attention up here unless you've got a Bible in your hand. Okay? He's writing to the Christians at Ephesus. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now he's going to tell us how he's praying for them. And if you ever want to pray for me, you pray this prayer for me, okay? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you, or another translation says, may grant unto you the spirit of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. And what? Revelation. Where? In the knowledge of him. See, if you pray this for me, then I'm going to have more wisdom. I'm going to have more knowledge to show you from the word the knowledge of him. Yes or no? Yes. So that's how you pray for me. Next verse. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened. Pray that my, uh, the eyes of my spirit, the eyes of my soul would be filled with light. That when I read the word, I'll know what you need. Amen? Amen. Now, you pray this for yourself, too. But don't forget about praying for me. <laughs> that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Keep going. And what is he seeding? He's praying. This is what I want you to know, Ephesians. Church at Ephesus, this is what I want you to know. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who what? Believe. There's no power if you don't believe. Amen. I don't understand. I don't stand, Pastor. I pray and nothing happens. You don't believe. You're praying like a magical incantation. It's not Harry Potter. This is Christianity, okay? You believe. You access the power of God by believing. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his mighty power? In other words, in the same way that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul's saying, I want you to have wisdom. I want you to have revelation. I want you to unlock the power that's available to you. And it's the same power that the Holy Spirit used when he raised Christ from the dead, okay? And seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Where's Jesus right now? Where? In heavenly places, okay? We spend all our time on the earth praying. And Jesus is like, okay, I'm up here now. You, I, uh, I love you. I'm glad that you're wanting to pray to me. But you're ignoring the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the central figure of the church Amen. on the planet. Amen. Jesus is in heaven. He's not going to get mad if you develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's imperative. Amen. That's, that you can't live on this planet as a Christian and live successfully and have some type of an impact on your generation if you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. That's another subject for another day. But let me ask you this question. According to the scripture, where's Jesus? 
seated in heavenly places with Jesus, right? Okay, next verse. Where is he? In heaven. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Stop there, leave that up there. Okay, most, when you read the Bible, and I didn't know this for many years, principality, power, might, and dominion are rankings of angels in the kingdom of darkness. This is the demonic realm. Go look, go look it up for yourself. A principality is a type of demonic presence. A power is another one. A might is another one. Dominion is another one. There are, just like in the kingdom of God, there's rankings of angels. There's bureaucracy. The same thing exists in the kingdom of darkness. Paul, having been aware of this, made aware of this, he says, Jesus is seated in heaven in heavenly places, just a little bit above the kingdom of darkness. What does it say? Far above, far above, all principality, power, might, and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but that also to come. So you got principality, power, might, and dominion. There's a few more that he mentions in some other letters, but that's the demonic realm. Now look at this. And, and what? Every name that is named. You know what that refers to? Every name that's named, okay? Cancer. Yes. Leukemia. Yes. AIDS. COVID-19, 20, 21, 22, 20, whatever ones they come out with. Okay, they're just a name. Yeah. Pastor, I went to the doctor and he told me I've got um, uh, kidney disease, liver disease, cirrhosis of liver. It's a name. It's a name. And according to the scripture, that name has got to bow to the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, do you either believe it or you don't? Amen. It's got to bow. Yes. Okay. Now, let's go to Ephesians. Oh, never mind. Verse 22. Stop there before we read this. Now, Jesus is where? He's seated in heavenly places, right? Far above, all, far above anything that the kingdom of darkness can produce, no matter what manifestation, whether it's a sickness, whether it's demonic activity, depression, oppression, drug addiction, alcoholism, any kind of addiction, okay? Now, and he, now get this straight, he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him, Jesus, to be the what? Head. Come on, guys. Head. Head over all things to who? Church. Who's the church? Oh, oh, I thought this building is the church. I thought this ceiling is the church. That wall's the church. The parking lot's the church. Who's the church? We are. We are. So God put all things under Jesus' feet, and Jesus, who's the head of the church, is over all things to the church. Yes or no? Yes. What's the next verse? Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Who's the body? The church. Who's the head? Does the head separate from the body? Does the body separate from the head? So it stands to reason then, wherever the head is, the body is. You getting this? You see where I'm going? All right. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 4. But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ 
Jesus. Well, pastor, how can this be? My body is here. I'm sitting here in this chair. Yeah, your body's here. Your soul is here. Your spirit is still in your body because if your spirit wasn't in your body, you're not alive. But your spirit is connected to the spirit of God and he's in heaven. Amen. You came into this relationship through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head. You are the body. Amen. Spiritually, we're connected to Jesus in heaven. And I've, got a, I've only got a few minutes to demonstrate this. Um, watch this. This is how most people pray. <laughs> oh, God. If you don't do something... If you don't change this thing, if you don't come through, if you don't this, and if you don't that, and you do that thing, oh, God. Where according to these scriptures, if he's in heavenly places, if he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and we're in him, then everything else is underneath us. And so this is how we should be praying. Sickness. You come off of me in the name of Jesus. Devil, take your hands off my kids in the name of Jesus. Amen. Circumstance, whatever it is, change. Job condition, change. Financial position, change. Where are you speaking from? Are you speaking from? <laughs> oh, oh, God. Or are you, are you seated in a place of authority? Amen. Now, what, oh, well, this is a new idea. No. Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, says that you and I were created in his image, in his likeness, and he gave us dominion. So Jesus, all he's trying to do is to bring us back to the position that we originally had before Adam knocked the legs out from underneath us. And what we do is, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not. No, you're not worthy. Of course you're not worthy. We don't get things done because we're worthy. We get things done because we walk in our identity, Amen. which is in Christ, Amen. not in me. Stop living out of your experience and start living out of your position. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Who are you? You are the ruling and reigning body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The word for church in the New Testament in Greek is ekklesia. It means the ruling administrative branch of government of the church on the earth. Amen. You have authority. Yes. The first identity that you should be walking in is one of authority. Now, don't let it happen like some people do, and I've seen many over the years, where they let that identity go to their head and they become cocky, arrogant, unmerciful, controlling, manipulative. Can I, should I keep going? I don't have time. Those are a perversion of our identity. You have been created by God to take his place here on the earth until Jesus gets back. Are you listening? Yes. Are you getting this? Yes. I hope so. Amen. So how do you step into that identity? With the words of your mouth. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you purchased forgiveness of me by your blood. I believe that God raised you from the dead. Jesus, come into my life, come into my heart. What are you doing? You're disconnecting your old identity and you're connecting to your new identity in Christ. Amen? Amen. The only place the devil should be is under your feet. Amen. Yes or no? Yes. Did you learn anything today? Yes. 
God bless you. If you need prayer for anything, come on up. If not, go enjoy your Mother's Day. God bless you. Thank you. I think it was in his pocket, a dollar eighty-seven when he started this ministry. And seven years ago, they started the ministry of Barbara's Place. And it is a residential home. I had the honor of being there. These women come in of all ages. They're broken. They have so much shame. Their relationships are broken because they've been through such abuse. And some of them, like we had 60-something-year-old 60 women coming in that lost their license from DWIs and couldn't see their grandchildren. Women come in there and live because it's a residential program for six months. And some of them leave their teenagers, their children at home to go there. And to sit across the table from these women weekly impacts your life in such a way because they start. you start to see God as redeemer. God as a restorer. He begins to restore the relationships. You, you get to see... Um, Women that come in and their kids aren't even talking to them and they begin to write letters and God begins to change these women and it's just amazing. It's such an incredible ministry of restoration, transformation and one of the things that the women always say is, this place gave me my relationship with Christ back. And I, we still, I still keep in touch. As a matter of fact, I was saying to Pastor, one of the women, her name is Carol, and when she came in, she kept saying, I'm not staying here for six months. I'm not staying here. I have a life to, to go to. I can't stay. We were like, Carol, just trust God. And these women are so humble. They trust God. They just, to see the sanctification of God worked out in their lives is a blessing. And this woman, Carol, um, she's like, I'm not staying past six months. And six months came. I'll make this quick, Pastor. Okay. Six months came, and I'll never forget this. All of the staff, the staff there is amazing. And the coordinator used to say to us, what do we think? Can they go home? Do we want to graduate them? Do they need to stay? And we wanted to ask Carol to stay an extra month. And she didn't want to stay because she wanted to go home for Christmas because she's like, I want a Christmas shop with my daughter, my grandchildren. I don't want to be here for Christmas. And so I remember our coordinator saying to her, whose will do you want, Carol? Do you want yours or do you want God's will? And she said, well, I want God's will. And I will never forget because every day she would come in and talk to me in the office and she had this look on her face leading up to then, like, I'm not leaving. And she was just, was just really rebelling against it. And that day when that coordinator asked her, her face just changed and she said, I want God's will, I'm staying. And I'll never forget this. At Christmas time, or right after Christmas, I had done um, like a, a reflective thing with them. I did an adulting class on Thursday nights and I said, what, what? I want to know from you ladies, what did you learn this Christmas being here at, at Barbara's place and being away from your family? And they were like, well, we are family. Like, I realized what it, it was so beautiful to be with family. And one of the things was family that didn't make our identity alcoholic. It was like these women saw me for the true child of God that I am. And I will never forget Carol saying, I wanted to go home at Christmas to be with my family to go shopping. And she said, it was during November to December, we had an idols class. And she said, God revealed to me in that class why 
I was drinking alcohol, like why I would go for alcohol. And she said, had I decided to go home, I would have never experienced God in the way that I did in that time. And she said, and that year we brought them everywhere. We went to so many places. Churches had invited us to so many like Christmas celebrations. And she said, you know, I wanted to go home for all these Christmas celebrations, but God knew the desire of my heart. I love Christmas musicals. And for some reason that year we did so many at Christmas. And so she just saw the hand of God, but it, would, it was seeing things like that daily. And Carol texted me this morning, and she always, every holiday, she texts me. And this morning she said, Happy Mother's Day, Pammy, because she was an older woman, and she always called me Pammy. And it was just the most beautiful experience. So this is such good ground that we're sowing in. We're sowing in even seeing these women at 60-something years old break, change, and generational things in their life and experience their freedom and victory, and their lives Amen. and families are changing. So praise the Lord. Um, we want all of you women to come up. What we want to do is pastor is going to pray over this. We want every woman to come up right now. If you would all just stand, but we want you to lay hands on this check because we're going to pray for this together. So come on up, ladies. Yeah, we're up we're doing this in your honor. Yeah. Amen. This is to honor you. We're doing this so that other moms, other women can experience freedom. Just come in as close as you can. Oh, my Lord Jesus. If you, if you can't get directly, put your hand on the person in front of you. Come on, come on, come on. Wow, there's so many. Uh, you can come up here if you want. Come up here. You can come up here. Okay, you, come on. Yeah, if you ladies want to come behind us, you could just some Wow. Yeah, come, come on. You, you guys can come up here if you want. Stand behind us. <laughs> Praise God. What an awesome thing. All right. Pray with me in your heart. You don't have to pray out loud. Father, in the name of Jesus, what an honor and a privilege it is for us to be able to support this ministry, Lord, that's come right from your heart, Jesus, the heart of compassion, the heart of mercy. Father, thank you for the families that are going to be restored in the future, for moms that are going to regain their dignity, That's women right. are going to regain their dignity, Father, that they'll walk out of that ministry, walk away from Barbara's place with their head up high, knowing the new identity that you have given them in Christ. And so, Father, we thank you that you'll take this $3,000, Father, from New Beginnings, and you'll multiply it to this ministry. Father, I pray that it goes to a need that's going to have eternal, eternal rewards. Father, we just praise you and thank you for the ability to be able to do this, Lord God. Thank you for the generosity of this congregation that allows us to do this, Father. And Lord, I pray your blessing over every woman that's up here, whether they're a mom or not. Father, in Jesus' name, blessings of empowerment, blessings of freedom, blessings, Father, uh, freedom from life-controlling issues, even among those who are up here right now, Father God. And Lord, we just thank you for each and every one of them in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you all.